All right, we are continuing our class on spiritual disciplines. Anybody remember all the disciplines we've gone over so far? Hearing the Word, reading the Word, memorizing the Word, meditating on the Word, prayer, fasting, serving, spiritual gifts, stewardship. And last week we had a class on stewardship of time. And I had been telling you the whole time I've been doing this class, I'm not here to give you a guilt trip. And then last week happened. And I had a whole bunch of people come to me and say, wow, you really made me feel guilty. But I kind of failed you last week because there were some questions I should have answered that I didn't answer. And those questions were given to me at the end of class. People came to me and said, well, what do I do? And so I want to answer those questions before we begin today's class. And we'll, we'll address them and then we'll, we'll jump into today's topic. Here's the question I got after last week's class. What do I do when I realize I've wasted so much time? Or to put it another way, how do I think about it? How do I understand it? I've spent most of my life as an unbeliever. That's a lot of wasted time. And if you left here last week feeling really guilty and not knowing how to handle that, I've got two things to help you with, okay? First, we need to address the, the obvious issue. Wasting time is sinful. We, we have to address that up front. And I know that doesn't make you feel better, but we have to address that up front. Wasting time is sinful. But it is not the unpardonable sin. This, this is not the sin that Jesus said, there is no forgiveness for this. Matthew 12, he says, that's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, not wasting time. So there is forgiveness in Christ if you have wasted time in your life. And everybody in this room has wasted time. But Christ does forgive. The promise of Romans 8.1, there is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ, is still true. So that's the first thing. Yes, it's sinful. And yes, there is forgiveness in Christ. The second thing, God is sovereign, even over your sin. No, we're not saying God is responsible for your sin. But God does decree all things. All things come to pass because God decreed them in eternity past. And you are still responsible for your sin, but God still planned every bit of what has occurred. You know it's part of God's will because it's already happened. And by the way, this is never an excuse for future sin. Don't say it's God's will for me to sin tomorrow. No, it's not. But what has happened in the past, you can honestly say that is part of God's will. And Romans 8.28 is still true. All things happen for the good of those that love him. Maybe not your temporal good, but your eternal good. All things are ordained by God to bring you into a greater likeness of Christ, even the time that you've wasted. Perhaps God allowed you to waste so much time so that you would be convicted and so that he could bring you into a greater level of repentance and in so doing make you more into the image of Christ. So, do you have wasted time in your past? Yes. Do I have wasted time in my past? Absolutely. Is there forgiveness? 
Yes. Is it part of God's plan? Absolutely. So the real question is not, what should I do about the sin of my past? Christ has already taken care of that. The real question is not, what what should I do about the time I've already wasted? It's already passed. You can't do anything about it. The real question is, what are you going to do with your time now? The answer to the question, what do I do about the time that I've wasted, is you recognize it's sin, you recognize it's all part of God's plan, and then you commit to fixing and using the rest of your time for his glory. Does that answer the questions from last week? Does that help? Okay. Let's get into today's topic. Today we're talking about evangelism. And I know some people are going to look at that and say, how is evangelism a spiritual discipline? Well, evangelism is a a difficult thing to do. It takes discipline for you to evangelize people. If you've ever tried, you've probably felt that little nudging in your stomach going, no, don't do it. (laughs) So it is a discipline, and it is part of God's means of sanctifying you because as you talk to other people about Christ, it's going to convict you where you're failing, and it's going to make you strive to be more and more in line with the things that you're saying. But we need to understand that evangelism is not an option. It's not presented to you in Scripture as something you can choose whether or not you're going to do it. Evangelism is a command given to believers. And I'm just going to give you some passages. Mark 16, verse 15. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. That's evangelism. Now, some very astute Bible students here, some very good Bible people in the room is going to say, Hey, wait a minute, Frank. That's the long ending of Mark. That's a questionable passage. That's okay. I have more. Luke 24, 46. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, on the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. What does he want from us? He wants us to proclaim the gospel to all nations. John 20, 21. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Acts 1.8 You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Evangelism is not an option. It's not a part of the Christian life that you can pick and choose whether or not you're going to engage in the discipline of evangelism. It is a basic expectation of the Christian life. You are expected to be evangelizing, not because Grace Bible Church said so, but because that is what Christ has called us to do. He has called us to preach the gospel to everyone. And some people at this point will stop and say, yeah, but hang on a second. I remember pastor's sermon on the spiritual gifts. And evangelism is one of those gifts. Ephesians 4.11, he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists. There it is. He didn't give me that gift because evangelism for me is hard. So that means I don't have to do it. That's for those super spiritual people over there. That's for the pastors and the elders and those crazy missionaries who go across the world. That's for them, but it's not for me. Well, there's a real problem with this. Because scripture nowhere requires that you have to be gifted in evangelism for you to do evangelism. We are called to be merciful, are we not? 
You were called to show mercy to others? Well, does that mean everybody has the gift of mercy? We're called to love, uh, excuse me, to give. Does that mean everyone in the room has the gift of giving? Just because you don't have the gift doesn't mean you shouldn't be doing it. The gift just enables and empowers some people to be more effective in that area. Evangelism is a command. It is a command that we are to be following. It is a command that we are to be obeying. And to be sure, just like last week, everyone in this room is going to look at their own personal evangelism and go, I'm not doing it very well, or I'm not doing it often enough, or I'm not faithful enough in this. Take wherever you are and just use this as an opportunity to excel still more. So let's talk about what evangelism is not. When we talk about evangelism, what are we not talking about? First, we're not talking about changing the culture. We're not going out and trying to change society. We're not revolutionaries. We're not trying to overturn the political structures or the social systems. We're not trying to change what's on television or what's in Hollywood. That is not what we're talking about in evangelism. We're also not talking about fighting poverty. Certainly, if you see someone who's poor, you should try to help them. And giving to the poor is a wonderful and noble cause that Christians should be engaged in. But that is not evangelism. Or food drives. We do food drives here. They may open up opportunities for evangelism, but they are not in and of themselves evangelism. Building houses. Again, it's a good thing to do. Habitat for Humanity. Go build some houses. That's a wonderful thing to do. But please do not confuse those good deeds with evangelism. All of those things can be good but none of those constitute what God has called you to do in evangelism. Evangelism is also not inviting unbelievers to church. And again, invite them to church. But that is also not evangelism. Evangelism is you giving them a message. You telling them about the gospel. Inviting them to the church is just giving someone else the opportunity to evangelize them. And again, I'm not diminishing you should invite people to church. Praying for unbelievers. It's not evangelism. Sharing your testimony. You should share your testimony. And your testimony can help affirm the gospel message, but your testimony is not the gospel. Nobody will be converted because they heard your testimony, unless your testimony includes a clear enunciation of the gospel. Social action, which kind of builds off what we talked about in the last slide. Social action is not part of the gospel. It's a part of what Christians are called to be doing, helping, caring for people. That's part of the Christian life, but it's not evangelism. And a certain way of living. How many of you have heard this quote? Preach the gospel at all times. Use words if necessary. How many of you have heard that? This is often attributed to uh, Francis of Assisi, but there's no evidence that he actually said this. This statement is ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. All the statement does is tell the Christian, be quiet. Don't say anything. We don't want to hear it. 
this is not what the gospel, this is not what the Bible calls us to do in evangelism. And I just want to demonstrate to you by going through the New Testament and just looking at some of the words that are used to describe evangelism in the New Testament. And then we're going to come back to this quote and we're going to match the two up and see how well they, they compare. Okay? Now, these are going to be Greek words. Don't worry about the Greek. Just go with the meaning of it, okay? Euangelizo. It means to proclaim the divine message of salvation. This is a proclamation. This is used in Romans 1, verse 15. I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. It's to proclaim a message. It's to declare a message. It's used again in 1 Corinthians 15. The gospel which I preached to you. Now in English we translate it as preached, but it's referring to any proclamation of the gospel. Acts 8 verse 40. But Philip found himself, and as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. This word describes proclaiming a message, not living a lifestyle. There's another word, didasco. It means to provide uh, instruction or to teach. To provide instruction or to teach. When this word is used with the previous one, it means to teach about the good news, to teach about the gospel. Acts 5.42, And every day in the temple, and from house to house, they kept on right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. They kept proclaiming the gospel message, and they kept teaching people about who Christ is and what he has done. One uh, lexicon said it is instructing activity which goes more closely into a matter, illustrates and supports it, which produces true understanding. This word doesn't refer to giving a superficial knowledge of something. I'm not going to just tell you a little bit and walk away. I want to get you to make sure that you truly understand what I'm talking about. This is the essence of teaching. There's another word, keruso. Keruso. It means to make an official announcement. It means to proclaim the gospel. You hear people tell you all the time, why don't you share the gospel with a friend? Scripture doesn't call us to share anything with them. Sharing something with them makes it sound like this is up to them if it's important. They get to decide how important this is to them. And if they don't want you to share with them, eh, we're not called to share. We are called to proclaim, to boldly state, to call them to believe. That's not sharing. It is a proclamation. Romans 10, 15, how will they preach unless they are sent? How are you going to proclaim it to anybody if you never go anywhere? If you're just staying home? Acts 9, verse 20, And immediately he, that would be Paul, began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue. There was no waffling here. This was a bold declaration of who Christ is. So there's Caruso, to proclaim. There's another one. Patho. Patho, to persuade or to convince. 
using persuasive rhetoric and speech. It means to cause someone to come to a particular point of view or course of action. You're persuading them that they need to repent, that they need Christ. Acts 19.8, And he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. 2 Corinthians 5.11, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. I'm not looking just to provide someone information. I'm looking for them to begin to agree with me on what I'm saying. I want their mind to change. I want their attitude to change. Another one, kata angelo. To proclaim, tell, announce, make known publicly. Acts 4.2, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. can't read. Martoreo. To confirm or test something on the basis of personal knowledge or belief, bear witness or be a witness. This is actually the word we get our word martyr from. To be a martyr, to die for something, to be a witness for something. 1 John 1, 2, he says, and the life was manifested and we have seen and testify, there it is, and proclaim to you the eternal life. Okay, so we're going to do a Greek vocab quiz now. So, I'm, no, I'm kidding. So when we finish all that, what does the New Testament say about evangelism? What do we learn from all of those words about evangelism? It's about the gospel. But evangelism means to proclaim, to announce, to persuade, to testify, to herald, to teach. That's what evangelism is. Now let's go back to our little quote. See the problem? You cannot do evangelism if your mouth is closed. I'm teaching right now, right? If I stood up here and did this, it's helpful, isn't it? does nothing. No one gains anything from it. You cannot do that. And this whole idea is, if I evangelize with my life, people will see my life, they'll see how well my life is going, and then they'll be interested in what I'm doing. Or they'll be interested in the God that I serve. But my life won't change anybody's heart. No matter how good my life is, it's not going to regenerate anybody. Nobody's going to come to saving faith in Christ because they look at Frank. I'm not that good. And neither are you. That idea of live a certain way so the world will be attracted to you is not a New Testament idea. That is an Old Testament idea. The Jews were told, stay and obey. God pulled them apart from the rest of the world, and he gave them the Mosaic Law. The Mosaic Law was to make them separate and distinct from the world. They didn't dress like the world. They didn't eat like the world. They didn't do anything like the rest of the world. They didn't even speak like the rest of the world. 
they were totally separate. They could not marry outside of the tribes of Israel. They couldn't do anything with the world. And the goal of that was for them to be obedient to God, and God blessed them, and then the world would look at them and say, how is it that these people have the blessing of God like this? And how can I be a part of it? Deuteronomy 4, verse 5. See, I have taught you statutes and judgments just as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. So keep and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all the statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. All of it was to attract the attention of the world and get the world to pay attention. And by doing so, they would come and see what's so different about Israel from everybody else. The Old Testament Great Commission was stay and obey. Live your life in obedience to God and let other people see it. That was the evangelism of the Old Testament. That is not the evangelism that the New Testament calls us to do. That is not what we are called to be doing. Yes, your life affirms your gospel message, but it is not the gospel message. Dwayne Lifton, Litfin, excuse me. If we are foolish enough or cowardly enough to abandon our verbal witness due to social pressure, oh, don't talk to me about that. That's the social pressure he's saying. Let us at least resist deluding ourselves through the use of obfuscating language that we are still doing evangelism. Let us be honest enough to acknowledge that we are vacating our verbal witness, however faithful we may be to the nonverbal dimensions of our calling. This is preferable to deceiving ourselves by defining our failure away. If you're going to sit there and say, I'm going to evangelize the world by not saying anything, by living a certain way, at least don't lie to yourself and call it evangelism. Just be honest and say, I'm abandoning the verbal aspect of this, and I'm just going to focus on living my life. Because that would be better than lying to yourself about it. If you're not speaking, you are not evangelizing. Without the use of the words, without speaking, you cannot evangelize anyone. Romans 10, verse 13 through 17. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the words of Christ. Social action, changing society, providing food and bread and money to people are all good things. But none of them will change a person's heart. None of them will bring someone to faith. Only the message of the gospel will do that by the power of the Holy Spirit. That is the only way it happens. John Cheeseman said, evangelism is not persuading people to make a decision. It is not proving that God exists or making out a good case for the truth of Christianity. It is not inviting someone to a meeting. It is not exposing the contemporary dilemma or arousing interest in Christianity. It is not wearing a badge saying, Jesus saves. Some of these things may be right and good in their place, but none of them should be confused with evangelism. He finishes with the actual definition of evangelism. He gives a, a decent definition. 
To evangelize is to declare on the authority of God what he has done to save sinners. To warn men of their lost condition, to direct them to repent and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Evangelism is giving people the gospel. It's warning them that they are sinners and that they are in deep trouble. And that Christ is the only option they have left. Your testimony, as good as it is, my testimony, is not the gospel. You can include it with your gospel presentation. But it only affirms what you say about the gospel. It is not the gospel. So what about some motivation? How can you get motivated to do evangelism? I have three things that you can use to help get motivated about evangelizing people. You should evangelize because you love God. And you desire to be obedient to God. Obedience can be a great motivator. God says, I need to be doing this, and therefore, I'm going to go do it. Even if I don't feel like doing it, even if I don't necessarily like doing it because it's uncomfortable. I'm going to do it because I love God, and I want to be obedient to him. John 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commands. 1 John 5, 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. A love of God will result in you wanting to be obedient. And evangelism is a command that God has given. Michael Riccardi who, by the way, was very helpful in putting this presentation together, said this, Our motivation comes from understanding evangelism as an issue of delightful obedience, as an expression of the deep love we have for our our God and Savior. Obedience is not what we do to earn our salvation. Obedience is what we do out of love for God because of the salvation he's already given. So you should, you should evangelize because you love God and you want to be obedient to him. Secondly, you should evangelize because you love your neighbor. Jesus said there are two great commandments. What's the first one? Love the Lord your God, right? And the second one? Love your neighbor as yourself. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you will want your neighbor to have the good things that you have. You wouldn't want your neighbor to have ill or bad things. You wouldn't want them to suffer in hell for eternity. You would want them to enjoy the greatest parts of your life, the things that you have found to be most valuable. 1 John 3, 16. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? The love that we're talking about here is a self-sacrificing love. He's talking about providing the, the goods of the world. But this goes into their spiritual needs as well. If you truly love someone, will you only give them what they need right now and ignore their eternity and ignore their eternal destination? This is self-sacrificing love. It drives us to do what is best for our neighbor, 
even if it's not always best for us in the moment. And to be honest with you, talking about Jesus Christ in the world today isn't always best for you in that moment. But like we talked about last week, you get opportunities only once. And the person you're talking to, this may be their last opportunity to hear the gospel from you. 1 John 4.20, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. I can't say I truly love someone, I care for them in a godly way, and then refuse to give them the greatest news ever heard. Refuse to give them a way to escape the punishment that they're headed for. That's not loving. It's not loving to them, at least. There you go. Self-love. Yeah. It's, it's saying, I love myself more than I love this person because I'm not even willing to experience a few moments of discomfort to spare them an eternity of suffering. Now, this next quote is from a guy who, uh, he's gone the wrong direction lately, and I'm not recommending him, but he has a good quote on this. This is Mark Dever. What does such love require of us? It seems to require that what we want for ourselves, we want for those we love too. If we desire to love God with perfect affection, you will desire that for your neighbor too. But if you are not loving your neighbor as yourself, if you're not trying to persuade him toward the greatest and best aspect of your own life, your reconciled relationship with God. The most important thing you can do, the most loving thing you can do for your neighbor is to tell them about Christ, is to give them the gospel. It's far more loving than giving them a loaf of bread. And giving them a loaf of bread is pretty loving, especially if they need it. Finally, you should want to evangelize because you want God to be glorified. 2 Corinthians 4.15, For all things are for your sakes, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. As you go out and proclaim the gospel, as you go out and tell people about Christ, and the Holy Spirit converts them, regenerates them, gives them new life, you know what they're going to end up doing? They're going to end up giving true worship, true praise, and true thanksgiving to God. They're going to give Him the glory that He rightfully deserves because now they actually have the ability to do so. God is going to use you to bring more glory to Himself. That's a privilege. That's a privilege. Think about the person who told you the gospel. Think about that first time someone explained the gospel to you. And you were saved through that person's witness. Don't they, doesn't that person hold a special place with you? You have a certain affection for that person, that pastor, that preacher. Because you recognize what that person has done for you. God gives you the same opportunity to do that for other people. And in doing so, you will bring him glory. Okay. I don't want to give a method for evangelism. I, I'm not real big on methods. 
And to be honest with you, you can choose any method that, any method that you want because it's not the method that changes hearts. It's not the method that was commanded by God. God didn't command the four-point method of evangelism or pick whatever evangelistic method you want. But I am concerned about the content of your evangelism. And so I want to, I want to stop for a few moments and for the rest of this class and just talk about the content of your presentation. And again, I'm not giving you here's what to say. I'm just going to talk about what is the content of the gospel message. And I'm going to give you some verses for all of these. If you want to write them down, you can. Just remember, don't kill your hand. These slides will be on, online, so you'll be able to get them again. Okay. So if I'm going too fast to write, just wait until the slides come out. All right? Your gospel presentation needs to include the answer to four simple questions. And you can present this however you want to present it. Here's the four questions. Who is God? Who is man? What has Christ done? And what must man do? Okay, and again, I'm not giving you a, I'm not giving you a method that you have to use. I'm just saying somehow you need to answer these questions for them. And you need to provide them answers to these because without these answers, they won't understand the gospel. Everybody with me? All right. So let's start with the first one. Who is God? You need to begin by recognizing that God is the creator. Every single gospel message needs to begin with a recognition that God is the creator, and as the creator, he has absolute authority over his creation. Why should they bow to a God that has no authority over them? But if he has authority, if he is your creator, he has the same authority over you that a potter has over a clay pot. Romans 9. On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? God has complete, total authority over his creation. Every sinner who's in rebellion against God is in rebellion against the God that created them and the God who has absolute authority over them. God created everything. There's no one who's going to be able to say, well, I don't need to worry about that because God didn't create me. I evolved. No, you didn't. Colossians 1 says, all things were made through him. John 1 says, nothing was made without him. Everything that exists came from him. And there is no evasion. There is no escape. Every single person is the creation of God and is therefore subject to his rule. Everything is dependent upon him. Acts 17.28, for in him we live and move and exist. I can't take my next breath without God. If it wasn't for him holding the molecules of this world together, it would all just disintegrate and go away. God has absolute authority because he is the creator. And not only is he the creator, but he is holy. God is holy. 1 Samuel 2.2, 2, there is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. God is completely set apart from sin. Completely pure in every way. 
1 John 1, he says, This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Darkness is a, a metaphor for sin, for immorality. And it says, in him there is no darkness, no, none at all. It's emphatic. No darkness. Habakkuk 1.13, your eyes are too pure to approve of evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. God doesn't look at the sinner and smile. He doesn't look on the sinner and see them approvingly. He's not a doting grandfather who looks at your imperfections and says, Oh, you poor thing. He looks upon sinful, rebellious sinners and he is enraged. Correction. He has wrath for them. He's angry with them every day. And because God is perfect, because God is holy, completely set apart, he now becomes the standard by which we will be judged. He now becomes the standard by which every sinner in the world will be judged. And his standard for you, his standard for me, his standard for the lost world is not do your best. It's not be a good person. Good people don't go to heaven. His standard for them is not be good. His standard is be perfect. That's the standard that you have to set for the unbeliever. It's not about your good works. You don't have good works that can overcome this. 1 Peter 1.16, Be holy for I am holy. That's quoting God from the Old Testament. You are to be just as holy as God is holy. That takes away any options, doesn't it? Because the second you sin one time, it's over. Matthew 5.48, Therefore you shall be perfect just as your heavenly Father is perfect. The standard for entering into heaven is perfection. Being like God. It's a standard no one can meet. It's an absolute perfection that is required. James 2.10 For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of the entire law. In, human, in the human world, in our world, if I steal $5, nobody's going to expect me to suffer the death penalty for it. Because we look at that from a human perspective and we say, well, the penalty doesn't match the crime. The consequences of my actions are not severe enough to warrant me being put to death. But when we sin against God, we don't sin against a finite creature. The effects of our sin are not finite. They're not limited to time. The sin is infinite because it's committed against an infinite God and an infinite law. And so your penalty will be infinite. So violating one part of the law is like violating the entire law. When giving the gospel, you need to explain who is God. You need to tell them God is the holy creator and he is the judge. And you will stand before him one day and he will judge you according to his perfect standard. Secondly, you need to answer the question, who is man? 
Who is man? Man is a transgressor, uh, transgressor? transgressor and violator of God's perfect standard. Another way to say man is a sinner. Ecclesiastes 7 verse 20 he says, Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. We just talked about God being perfectly holy and you are expected to be perfectly holy and one little violation is too much. And Ecclesiastes says, there is none on the earth who continually does good and who never sins. Everyone's messed this up. Romans 3, you guys know this passage. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. It just removes everyone from the list of people who are making it to heaven on their own. Because nobody is going to meet the standard. They have no option. And it's not just external sin. Because you'll have people who tell you, well, I don't kill people. I never robbed anybody. But Jesus said, even sin that occurs in your heart is enough. Just having certain desires. Matthew 5.28, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The sin occurred in the heart. It occurred in the desires. There's a lot of religious leaders who are out there right now saying, it's okay to have homosexual desire as long as you don't act on it. What he just said was in violation of what Jesus said. Jesus said, if you look in lust, you have committed adultery. You're in sin. Saying my external behavior is good isn't enough because your heart is wicked and your heart desires that which is evil. Because man is a sinner, he's completely separated from God. He's completely separated from God. Man cannot have a relationship with God at any level. There is no relationship with God when you are covered in sin. He can't pray to God. Psalm 80, verse 4, O Lord, God of hosts, how long will you be angry with the prayer of your people? They're in sin, and their prayer is just making them angry. He doesn't even want to hear it. Isaiah 1.15, so when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. The sinner can't pray. He can't worship. There's no true worship outside of Christ. He can't do anything that's pleasing God. He can't even be obedient to God. And without a relationship with God, if he's outside of God and has no relationship with him, that means he has no help from God. He has no forgiveness. He has no protection. He has no advocate. He has no ally. He's completely on his own. And the Bible says the wrath of God abides upon him. It's not waiting for him. It's abiding upon him now. John 3, 36, he believes in the Son, has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. 
man is helpless and hopeless. He has no options. John 3.36. Sorry, I didn't put that on the screen. That would have helped. There is nothing he can do. There is no good work that he can do to change his condition. There's no effort that he can take that will change his condition. And there's nothing you can do for them. Psalm 49, verse 7 and 8. No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him, for the redemption of his soul is costly, and he should cease trying forever. Just give up. You can't do this. And your good works will not help them. Because there's nothing that can be done. Isaiah 64, 6. For all have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. You guys know those passages. Titus 3, 5. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. There is nothing the sinner can do. And there is nothing that you can do for them to change their condition. They are completely hopeless. And they need to understand that. That needs to be a part of the message. And that message doesn't make sense if you don't begin with, who is God? If you only answer a part of this, they're going to be confused. So who is man? Man is a sinner. He's the recipient of God's wrath. And he is unable to do anything, anything about it. Your gospel presentation is going to include the answer to who is God and who is man. And the third answer you need to give them, what has Christ done? They need to understand that Jesus is not just a man. Jesus is the God-man. And he was completely sinless. He lived a perfect life. Jesus said in John 10, verse 30, he said, I and the Father are one. He wasn't just a good prophet. He wasn't just a good man. If he was just a good man and he said, I and the Father are one, guess what that means? He's a liar if it's not true. That's not a good man. That's a liar. Not only that, he's a blasphemer. He is God in the flesh. Colossians 2.9 said, In him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Philippians 2, 6 and 7, verses 9 through 11. You guys know that passage. I'm not going to read it. He is God who came to earth, took on the veil of human flesh, fully God, fully man. And he lived a life just like anyone else would, as another human being. Not only did he live a life, but he also died on a cross. Now, it's amazing because I grew up in a so-called Christian family. I grew up in South Texas where everybody, if you ask them, are you a Christian? They'll say, yes. But for 30 years, nobody ever told me why Jesus dying on a cross was good news. And I would wager if you ask many people, are you Christian? Yes. How does Jesus dying help me? 
well, he died for your sins. Okay, what does that mean? Well, he'll help you get to heaven. How? No clue. They don't understand it. They don't get it. It's never been explained to them. You assume they identify as Christian. They must know. No, actually they don't. It's never been explained to them. You and I are sinners. We deserve the wrath of God. God is just. And if God gives us what we rightfully deserve, he will send us to hell because that is the just punishment for our sin. And Christ paid that penalty on the cross. He took the guilt of our sin and he paid for it on the cross. Second, wow, typo here. That's supposed to be 2 Corinthians 5.21, not 2 Colossians. <laughs> Slow down typing. Okay. He, that would be the Father, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He's not saying that Jesus changed in nature, that Jesus became a sinner. He didn't become a sinner. Sin was credited to him. Put it another way. When Christ was on the cross, the Father treated him as though Jesus lived my life. The Father treated him as though Jesus lived your life. The only thing is, he didn't actually live our life. He lived a perfect life. Galatians 3, 13 and 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. He was treated as though he lived my sinful life. And he suffered the penalty that I deserve. He suffered the penalty that you deserve. And the result is that we receive his righteousness. His righteousness is credited back to us. It's imputed to us. It's attributed to our account. 1 Peter 3.18, Christ also died for sins once for all. The just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God. Everyone is included in the unjust. Christ, the one just holy man, died on behalf of those who are not holy, who are not just. And through his death, we have the forgiveness of our sins. Colossians 2.13, when you were dead in your transgressions and uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. There's a false gospel out there. The Roman Catholic Church says in their catechism, those who die in the friendship of God, yet still imperfectly purified. According to Rome, you can be in the friendship of God, you can believe in Jesus Christ, and still die imperfectly purified. Still die with sin and punishments that you owe. And the Bible says, no, because of the death of Christ, all sin, for those who believe, all sin has been removed. All punishments have been taken. And when you present the gospel, and when you explain to them what Christ has done, you have to explain the resurrection. 
the resurrection is vital. Paul said, if Christ is not raised, we are what? Most to be pitied. We're still in our sin. Acts 17.30 Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed. Here it is. Having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. The resurrection proves that the father accepted the sacrifice of his son. The resurrection proves that those who are in Christ will be resurrected. The resurrection also proves that Christ will one day return. I'm not going to read those verses. We don't have time. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7-8. Tell them about the resurrection. So your gospel presentation needs to answer the question, who is God, who is man, and what has Christ done? Finally, you need to answer the question, what must man do? What must they do? I had a professor in seminary who said, Frank, don't be scared to get to the you. You need to tell them about you. What should you be doing? And what they should be doing is repent. Now, repentance is not making yourself holy. It's not purifying yourself so Jesus will accept you. Repentance is recognizing that you are not acceptable to God. It's recognizing that God is the creator, he is the holy judge, and that you cannot be acceptable to him. And in that desperation, you turn and you place your trust only in Christ. You have faith in Christ. You trust in him. How many of you have been to the Grand Canyon? Okay. If I had a little piece of thread, and I strung it up over the Grand Canyon, and I handed you the piece of thread... And I said, all right, Forrest, I want you to grab on this little piece of sewing thread and I want you to swing out over the Grand Canyon. You up for it? Why not? Amen. I don't have faith in that little piece of string to hold me. Guess what? That's what we're talking about in salvation. Because if he swings out over the Grand Canyon on that little piece of thread and that thing breaks, is he surviving? No. The sinner is going into eternity, and he's going to swing out into eternity. And if he swings out into eternity, grabbing onto the thread of his works, it's going to break. If he swings out in eternity on his religion, it's going to break. There's only one little tiny thread that you can swing out on, and it won't break. And that's Jesus Christ. That's what it means to have faith in, to trust in Christ. You have no alternatives. That's it. True repentance recognizes that you have broken God's law. True repentance ends in a person hating their sin. It's not turning from the sin that you love to embrace the righteousness that you hate. True repentance is beginning to hate the sin that you once loved to embrace and to love the righteousness you once hated. And then asking that God would help you submit to him in those areas, specifically the areas of your sin. 
True repentance results in trusting in Christ. Acts 16.31, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Michael Riccardi again said, having faith in Jesus Christ as Savior means recognizing that his death pays the penalty incurred by sin and depending upon his righteousness alone for acceptance with God. Having faith in him as Lord means believing in his resurrection and submitting your entire life to his authority. Charles Spurgeon talked about faith, and he said, Often do I hear it said, Love Jesus, dear children. That is not the gospel. It is trust him, believe, not love, but faith is the saving grace. You have to call the sinner to trust in Christ. You have to warn them, tell them who God is, tell them who they are, let them know what Christ has done, and then implore them to turn and to trust in Christ. I don't have a method for you. It's not your method that's going to save Your job is not to go out and try to trick people or manipulate them or come up with the best way of saying this or that. Your job is to go sow seed. Your job is to throw as much seed as you can, and who causes the growth? God causes the growth. Any questions? That's a really good point, and that's one of the areas I could have included, but we don't have time. Um, count the cost. Warn them, this is not something you try. You try broccoli. You don't try Jesus. Okay? Just saying. All right. It's 10 o'clock. If you have any questions, feel free to come up and see me afterwards. Let's, let's pray. Father, we, we thank you so much um, for this opportunity to be here, to gather with the saints. But more importantly, Lord, we we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that Christ has come. He has paid our sin. He is our sin bearer, and it is only because of him that we have any chance or hope of communing with you, fellowshipping with you, or spending eternity with you. And Lord, we just ask that in recognition of what you have done for us, that you would help us to boldly proclaim that message to love you, to love our neighbor, to bring glory to you as we go out and proclaim the gospel to our friends, our family members, our neighbors, and then to trust that you will water and grow that seed. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.